Turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 22. We're going to be looking at verses 15 through 22 in a message I'm entitling Kings and Coins. Chapter 22, verse 15. Again, I'm going to pray. Lord, I pray that you would fill our hearts with a desire to know you, to love you, to honor you, to serve you. Lord, I pray that you would awaken in our hearts a keen sense, Lord, of responsibility towards you and towards each other. That, Lord, we don't have to forsake the one in order to embrace the other. So, Lord, we commit this time to you. We, again, pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew chapter 22, verse 15. It says, Then the Pharisees went and plotted how they might entangle him in his talk. And they sent to him their disciples with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God in truth. Nor do you care about anyone, for you do not regard the person of men. Tell us, therefore, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus perceived their wickedness and said, Why do you test me, you hypocrites? Show me the tax money. So they brought him a denarius, and he said to them, Whose image and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. And he said to them, Render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they had heard these words, they marveled and left him, and went their way. In chapter 22, Jesus continues to teach in the temple concerning the kingdom of heaven. It is Tuesday. On Friday, he will be executed. In the first part of the chapter, Jesus gave an overview of the kingdom of heaven in verses 1 through 14. And now we find the leaders of Israel attempting to oppose the kingdom of heaven by trapping Jesus in his speech. In this chapter, there are four questions that will be asked. The first is a political question about taxes in verses 15 through 22. The second is a doctrinal question about the resurrection in verses 23 through 29. The third is an ethical question where Jesus is going to be asked some specifics concerning the law in verses 34 through 40. But the fourth question is personal and it's going to include the subject of the Messiah. Jesus is going to ask the religious leaders a question. How can the Messiah be both David's son and David's Lord in verses 41 through 46. The questions are neither random 
nor accidental. You'll remember it's the week of the Passover. And you'll also remember that for literally hundreds of years, the Passover lamb would be brought to the priest and would be evaluated for inspection. The lamb had to be found blameless, faultless, and without sin. In a very real sense, in Matthew's gospel, Jesus is brought before the religious leaders for inspection to discover whether or not he is faultless, blameless, and without sin. And you have to understand something. The examination isn't done by family and it isn't done by friends. It's done by enemies. The religious leaders think that they can ambush Jesus with a question. The religious leaders want Jesus to choose between two responsibilities. And Jesus is going to shock and surprise them by choosing both. It begins with the inquiry. Look at this. The the leader's inquiry in verses 15, 16, and 17. Beginning in verse 15, it says, Then the Pharisees went and plotted how they might entangle him in his speech. You have to remember that the religious leaders are still stinging from the judgment parables. In chapter 21, verse 1, all the way to chapter 22, verse 14. Again, when Jesus reveals their inward hypocrisy and their outward fruitlessness, I am sure they did not enjoy being exposed by Jesus as wicked as cowards, as hypocrites. In the judgment parables, Jesus warned them, I need you to stop. I need you to cease. I need you to desist, to abandon your evil intentions, your hypocrisy, and your disobedience. You must read this passage in the spirit in which it is given. Listen carefully, because what I'm about to say is true. Jesus loves them. He has been patient with them. He has been kind to them. He has been generous to them. And that patience and generosity and kindness becomes an example for each and every one of us, particularly for those who seem committed to opposing Christ, opposing the gospel, denying the Bible. Jesus in the parables gives them every opportunity to believe, to repent, to be saved. And the religious leaders refuse to repent. And instead they concoct a plan to trap him in his speech. In verse 16 it says, And they sent to him their disciples with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true. Teach the way of God in truth. Nor do you care about anyone, for you do not regard the person of men. Now you have to understand, in the passage, two groups resolve their differences and they unite together in order to try and discredit Jesus. The Pharisees, in verse 15, send their disciples Verse 16, along with the Herodians, 
These two groups were as different as night and day on almost every issue. Just like Republicans and Democrats in our day and age. A visitor in the, in the cafe asked me, um, he said he was a Democrat and could he still have free coffee? And I said, of course you can. Now, now, we laugh, but I need you to understand, that's the kind of thinking that is prevalent in our culture and our society. We are deeply divided. There was a time when it wasn't so. As a matter of fact, as you know, it's Memorial Weekend, and I'm reminded of a church in California where... The, the, the church was founded in the 30s, and in the 1940s, they put in their foyer on the wall a plaque. It said, dedicated to those who died in service. And so in World War II, you can imagine several names were added to the plaque. And in the Korean War, several names were added to the plaque. In the Vietnam War, several names were added to the plaque. And so the pastors were were acknowledging military and those who died in service. And a little boy turned to his father and said, which service? Was it, did they die in first service or second service? Yeah, some people have no clue. These two people are going to collaborate. The Pharisees were a separatist religious movement. The Herodians were a political movement that collaborated with the family of Herod and were therefore supporters of the Roman occupation. The Pharisees, Padashim, were ultra-Orthodox observant Jews. And they oppose the Roman occupation and they oppose the Roman poll tax for any number of reasons. And so the question is preceded with insincere flattery. They call Jesus Rebbe, Rabbi. They claim that he loves and teaches the way of truth. Paul Hughes writes, quote, their lips dripped with insincere flattery. They appeared attempted to appear as innocent inquirers. They hoped to disarm Jesus. They hoped to throw him off guard so that he would unwittingly give a self-condemning answer. Ironically, their flattery contained a modicum of truth. Jesus was not and is not influenced by human beings. And certainly, he isn't intimidated then Or now, Jesus walked into their trap with his eyes wide open. As always, he is going to answer with the truth, unquote. So he says, tell us, therefore, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? In order to understand the question, you have to understand part of the political drama that is happening in Israel, in Palestine, if you will, or in the Judean province. Judea became a province of Rome in 63 BC when Aristobulus, um, in, in acknowledging the, the Roman invasion, gives Pompey control 
of the city of Jerusalem in the province of Judea. I happen to have a coin in the case that commemorates that event. So Judea became a province in 63 BC. The Jews weren't forced to pay tribute taxes to Caesar until about 6 AD. The Jewish Sanhedrin was tasked by the Roman emperor and the Roman senate with the collection of the taxes. There were three basic taxes that were levied. Number one, a land tax or a produce tax. They took one-tenth of all grain, one-fifth of all fruit or wine. Number two, everyone over the age of 14 to 65 paid a head tax or a poll tax, which was collected during the time of the census. And of course, that amount was a day's wage. It was a denarius. Number three, there was a custom tax, which would have been collected at the ports of entry in Caesarea by the sea. In Joppa, there were tolls and gates for goods and services being transported. And those goods and services would be taxed from between 2 to 5% of the value of the goods. Here, the reference is almost certainly to the poll tax, or what we would call the existence tax. The poll tax was required by Rome. The Romans charged, like I said, a kind of existence tax. Everything in their world belonged to the Caesar. The air that you breathed was Rome's air. The ground that you walked on was Rome's ground. You ate Roman fruit and Roman vegetables and Roman grains. And, and of course, the religious leaders believed, well, wait a minute. The Bible says that the earth is the Lord's in the fullness thereof. That God created the heavens and the earth. That God created the sky and the earth and the air. The Pharisees didn't want to submit to Rome's rule. And so the tax money was collected, was used by Rome to support the Roman temples. To, to support pagan activities. To support the Roman occupation. To support a Roman lifestyle. If the Pharisees were running an ad campaign to vote against Caesar's tax, it might go something like this. Take a deep breath. God made the air. God made your lungs. You have a right to exist. Vote no on Caesar's poll tax. The Pharisees didn't want to submit to Gentile or foreign rule or foreign authorities. They refused to believe that Caesar was God. They didn't even think he was a very good ruler, let alone God. And plus, they had better things to do with their money than to give it to Caesar and the Roman government, which might be an attitude that some of you have. That you have better things to do with your money than to give it to the government in order to waste it. Their slogan would have been, it's your dough, vote no. The Herodians were associated with Herod, who received the right to rule from Rome. Pompey made Herod's father the king of the Jews. Mar Marcus Antony, who was... The, 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 who built the Antonine Fortress in Jerusalem appoints Herod the Great 
to be the king of the Jews. Herod dies. He, he distributes the areas of the Galilee and Judea to his sons. So the Herodian family, in order to stay in power, had to support Caesar. In other words, it doesn't make sense that you could exist and not support the governing authorities. The Pharisees hate Jesus because he's disrupting their religious agenda. The Herodians hate Jesus because he's upsetting their political agenda. Both parties want Jesus out of the way. Both parties want Jesus dead. And so it shouldn't come as a shock or a surprise to you that people who are wildly different on any number of subjects, whether they're atheists, New Agers, or pagans, will unite together and say, whatever else is real, here's what we know. We know we hate you. We hate Christians and we hate the Bible. Now again, part of the challenge that we have is to remind ourselves is it possible that people with completely different worldviews and outlooks can unite together in their opposition against Jesus? That's exactly what's happening. So they're going to devise a plan that would make it impossible for Jesus to answer without offending someone. Silence would have been disastrous. Evasion criminal. Collaboration would have incited a riot. Approval would alienate all of the Jews who bitterly opposed the tax. Rome tolerated religious diversity, but tax evasion was met with military intervention. So you can see the dilemma. If Jesus opposes the tax, he's in trouble with the Herodians, the political Jews, and the Roman government. Failure to pay taxes would not only be met with swift punishment, they could seize your property, freeze your assets, squeeze your intestines. Quote, this is from John Corson, he could be arrested for tax evasion, anarchy, political rebellion, unquote. If he supports the tax, he's in trouble with the religious Jews and the zealots, a kind of patriot movement in ancient Israel. Each time a Jew paid the tax, he acknowledged his subservience and dependence upon Rome. Each denarius was a reminder. We're an occupied country. We're a defeated people. Every coin paid was a constant reminder that we aren't free. By the way, in my little case, I have the first coin minted by a free Jew when they went in re rebellion against Rome. And then I have the last coin minted by a free Jew in 134 AD when the Jews would be scattered and it would take until May 14, 1948 for free Israeli citizens to mint their own coin. I happen to have that coin as well. It was made out of a sheet of aluminum, and the, it's, it's called a, a zuzim. It was a coin that was minted by Bar Kokhba during the revolt, and it had a cluster of grapes on one side, and then it had, it had um, a cornucopia on the other side. When Israel became a free nation, they copied that image and then created a bridge of over a thousand years of one free people to another free people. 
And so look at the Lord's incrimination in verse 18. But Jesus perceived their wickedness and said, why do you test me, you hypocrites? Now, remember what they've already said? We know that you're, you speak the truth. You're a guy who loves the truth. You're a guy who isn't going to be impressed by anyone or anything. And you can imagine when he says, why are you testing me, you hypocrites? Jesus knew that it was a trap. Jesus rebukes them, again, for their wickedness, for their evil intentions, for their obvious hypocrisy. When Jesus asks the question, why do you test me? It isn't because he doesn't know the answer to that question. He knows they want to trap him. He knows that they want to kill him. He's asking the question in order to expose their motives and reveal to everyone what is exactly going on. And that is a principle in the scriptures, by the way. Whenever Jesus asks a question, he knows the answer. And so when he asks you a question, it isn't because he doesn't know the answer answer. He wants you to know the answer. The deceit prompts a stern denunciation, but it creates a mechanism for each and every one of us because, again, we're living in a culture and a society that almost invariably insists on your silence. Christian, don't speak out about abortion. Christian, don't speak out about pornography. Christian, keep your mouth shut about sexual immorality or same-sex marriage. Now, don't get me wrong. There's a lot of other things that we could condemn here. But here becomes part of the point. Christian, will you remain silent? Because you're afraid you're going to lose your job. You're going to lose your friends. The moment that they discover that you're a Christian, the moment that they discover that you love God and you love Jesus and you read the Bible, that isn't going to be what upsets them that you read the Bible. The thing that's going to upset them is that you believe it. Because even the unbeliever will read it. And so the Lord gives the illustration. Look what it says in verse 19. Show me the tax money. Now, the moment that he says those words, show me the tax money, do you understand that he doesn't have it on him? Sorry, prosperity teachers. Sorry, those people who think that he drove a, a three-humped camel and that he had designer <laughs> robes. And that he lived some sort of life of rich extravagance. The very fact that he doesn't have any money, the very fact that he says, show me the money, is proof positive that he doesn't have it. Look what it says. So they brought him a denarius. He insists on seeing the money. And by the way, he doesn't take a poll tax on or a poll on the poll tax. He doesn't say, hey, everyone, everyone. All in favor of a poll tax, raise your hand. I mean, imagine if I did that. All people who go to Calvary South Denver, if you favor an income tax and you want to give your money indiscriminately to a government that wastes it, raise your hand. Oh, I don't see any takers. Nobody wants to live in a world where people take advantage of other people. 
The denomination brought to him was a denarius. It was a day's wage for a skilled laborer. If you were a scribe, you would get paid two denarii a day. With a denarius, you could buy a cup of wine, a loaf of bread, and a place to stay. I've long been fascinated by coins. When I was a kid, I went to a flea market with my uncle, and I was at a table, and I saw a coin that I'd never seen before. It was a, a penny with an Indian head on it. I didn't know even such a thing could exist. And I thought, how much do you want for that penny? And he said, 35 cents. And my uncle thought it was ridiculous to pay 34 more cents for a one penny coin. But I wasn't just fascinated with the coin. I wanted to know where it was minted, what it meant. Why did it have an Indian head on it? Where was it minted? What could you buy with it for in 1899? And it took me on a little journey of coin collecting when I was 10 years old forward. Coins in the ancient days were made from gold and silver and bronze. The first Roman coin to bear the image of the Caesar dates from the time of Julius Caesar. I have one here in the coin. We know it's in this case. The first coin minted by a living Roman is in my case. We know that it was minted between January 15th and February 15th in 44 BC because it was this coin that got Julius Caesar killed. Because in the Roman Republic for the last 500 years, no living emperor or king would have been placed on the coinage. It would be like if Donald Trump, and I'm using him just because he's the president of the United States. If Donald Trump said, we're going to eliminate the penny, the nickel, the quarter, the half dollar. We're going to get rid of all of their portraits and we're putting my portrait on. How would people react? Yeah, they're not going to be good with that. They're going to say, you know what? We're, somebody said good, but... <laughs> it clearly goes against American tradition and American ideals. No living president has ever been placed on coinage, except for the commemorative coins. And so, Jesus asks for this particular coin. It was a small coin about the size of a dime. He said to them, whose image and superscription, or another translation is inscription or engraving is this. They said to him, Caesar's. And he said to them, render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. In other words, they're expecting one or the other, and Jesus is going to surprise them and shock them by stating both. The answer, when he said to them, whose image and inscription is this? The answer must have stuck in the religious leader's throat. Caesar. <coughs> Caesar. They would have hated to say the name out loud. On one side of the coin was an image of Tiberius. Tiberius, for all of his faults and favors, 
the good things about him and the bad things about him. Tiberius was the great nephew of Augustus. He becomes the emperor in 14 AD. Unlike other emperors, he sticks to one image of himself and his mother on the reverse of the coin. It was Livia seated. So the portrait was Tiberius. The inscription in Latin would have been translated this way. It would have said, Tiberius, Caesar, son of the divine Augustus, Augustus. Again, on the reverse, some people think that this is Pax, which is peace. Some people think that it's uh, um, another person. Most scholars believe it's Livia sitting on a chair. The inscription reads, Pontifex. Maximus. For those of you who grew up in a Roman Catholic tradition, this is the title that the Pope gives to himself. Pontifex Maximus was from a root word. The word pont in the Latin language was bridge. Pontifex Maximus meant the person who was the chief bridge builder. It came to mean the person who was chief who represented the people to the gods and the gods to the people. So the Roman emperor was not only the divine ruler, but he was the divine priest. There was no separation of church and state in that culture. The coin was paid to what was called the fiscus or the treasury. And the word translated render, even though you may not see it, it's important. Apodote, it's the aorist imperative of apodidomai. It means to return, to give back. It literally means to return or repay a debt. Now, this becomes important in our discussion of what Jesus is talking about because the coin bears the image of Caesar. Caesar, when he made this coin, would have gotten the silver from the Macedonia or Spain. He would have sent slaves in. They would have mined the silver. They would have assayed the gold and the silver and the bronze. He would have hired sellators, the best in the land, to create an image of himself. They, they would take a die made out of iron and they would engrave every single detail into the die. And then they would put it an obverse and a reverse. On the die, they would take a piece of what was called a planchet of silver that was 3.8 grams. They would place it on the planchet, then they would hit it with a hammer, and then it became coin of the realm. In other words, Caesar mined the silver, hired the sellator, and ascribed a value to the coin. The very fact that they had the coin bore witness to the fact that they, in fact, belonged to part of that country. You may hate the United States of America. You may hate its government. You may hate its monetary system. But if you go to King Supers or Albertsons or Safeway and you pay with money, that means that you are in the most hypocritical way acknowledging that you go here, that you live here. 
And so the fact that they had the coin bore witness to the fact that they belonged in part to that country. They received the benefits from Caesar and the empire. The government, remember, existed to promote righteousness and punish evildoers. Did the Roman government always promote righteousness? No. Did they always punish evildoers? Not always. But that's the reason why government exists. All government exists to promote righteousness and to resist evil. And our government is acting appropriately when it promotes righteousness. And it's acting wickedly when it pr promotes wickedness. The government existed to promote righteousness, punish evildoers. The Romans brought a measure of peace. They had a fairly sophisticated commercial system for trade and transactions. And the Pharisees clearly thought that paying a pagan emperor tribute money was immoral. They literally believed that it offended God. Paying the tax didn't mean submission to the divinity that was claimed by the emperor. In other words, when, when on the coin, Tiberius writes, the divine Augustus, the son of the divine Augustus. Do you know what he's claiming? He's claiming to be the son of God. By the way, is everything written on coins true? Now, the inscription doesn't necessarily make it true. On our own coins, we have an image. It says, in God we trust. Does that mean that everyone who takes that coin to King Supers and buys groceries trusts God? No. By the way, there's been an effort to remove in God we trust. It came on our coinage in 1864. I have one of them. The very first coin ever minted in America that has in God we trust. Do you know why it happened? We were in the midst of a huge civil war. Over a million people were already dead. There was not a single person probably in either north or south that wasn't overwhelmingly hurt by the horror that was our civil war. And there was a call on the part of the people, whether north or south, to think about God, to think about his love, to think about reasons why we could unite instead of divide. During the time of Teddy Roosevelt, they took the In God We Trust off of our coins. I have one in, in there as well. There was an uproar. The United States of America, in a single voice, stood up and said, you, no way. And they put it back on the coins. Now, our coins, with the new dollars, they put the In God We Trust on the rim. And then, there were at least three or four coins that were minted without the date, without the e pluribus unum, without the in God we trust. There's this almost metaphor for our country as it seeks to distance itself from God or any claim. Jesus is going to affirm that God is sovereign and ultimately in control. Paying the tax didn't mean submission to the divinity claimed by the emperor. Caesar had a right to claim their tax money but he had no right to tax their souls or to claim their souls. Jesus, in effect, affirms that God is sovereign, that God is ultimately in control. Remember when they say, whose image is on there? 
They said Caesar. But according to Genesis chapter 1, every human being is made in the image and the likeness of God. In the present circumstances of, 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 the, of the passage, the Jews lived in a Roman world. Therefore, they had obligations and responsibilities to Rome. But the Jews also lived in God's world. Jesus makes it clear that they can do both without compromising their character or perverting priorities. The tax would be paid as long as Rome controlled the province. But God had rights on eternity, on their soul. Jesus knew these these Jews, most certainly these Pharisees, they claimed that they were God's chosen people. But were they really giving to God what belonged to God? Were they giving him their heart and their soul and their mind and their strength and their affections? Did they really care about what God cares about? The answer that Jesus gives is simple and profound. In ancient times, again, the coin was the property of the person who authorized the making of the, of the coin. Who could object to giving the property back to its rightful owner? The simple answer, again, is perhaps the most important political statement ever made in the history of Western civilization. When Jesus gives the answer that he gives, he's going to point out three important things that will remain forever true. Number one, Christians have a responsibility to honor and obey the ruling authority or government. Paul expounds upon that in Romans 13. In verses 1 through 7, he says, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Under that, he says, therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God. And those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. By the way, the Roman people in 66 AD will finally have it with Rome. And they will revolt. I have a, a coin. It was the very first coin minted in revolution against Rome. The coin was illegal to own, and if you were caught owning it, they would kill you, and they would destroy the coin. That's why so few of them exist to this day. So they minted a coin in 66 AD, 67, 68, 69, and 70 during the time of the revolt. The 10th and 12th armies came in with Titus and Vespasian. They killed over a million of the Jewish people. And then they scattered the rest of them throughout the empire. Nero was the emperor when Paul wrote those words. Nero had his own mother killed. He was a liar. He was a sexual pervert. He initiated the first waves of profound persecution against Christians. He would impale them on a stake and dip them in pitch and then light them on fire. That's who was in charge when Paul wrote those words. There's no record of the church or its leaders ever mounting a protest against the government. The former chaplain of the United States, Richard Halverson, wrote, quote, To be sure, men will abuse and misuse the institution of the state, just as men, because of sin, have abused and misused every institution in history, including the church of Jesus. But this doesn't mean the institution is bad or that it should be forsaken. It simply means that men are sinners. They are rebels in God's world. And this is the way they behave with good institutions. As a matter of fact, it is because of this very sin 
That there must be human government to maintain order in history. Until the final and ultimate rule of Jesus Christ is established. Human government is better than anarchy. And the Christian must recognize the right of the state. God created the family. God created government. God created the church. The family can't be dissolved by the state. But there's a conscientious effort for the state to do exactly that. The church can't make the government go away. The government in North Korea, in Saudi Arabia, and in many parts of the world has made a conscientious effort to make sure that the church of Jesus Christ doesn't exist and meets it with unconditional persecution. If you're in North Korea and they find you with a Bible, minimum you're in prison, most likely you're killed. If you're found with a Bible in Saudi Arabia, minimum you're imprisoned, most likely you'll be killed. Do you realize that Got Questions penetrates North Korea and Saudi Arabia with the gospel, answering people's questions, where people can't smuggle Bibles in. People online, even in those countries, are becoming exposed to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Number two, Christians have a responsibility to honor and obey God. It is possible that in order to honor God on occasion, we have to disobey the government. Remember, the authorities that exist have been established by God. God's authority is unlimited. Man's authority is limited. There are at least three areas in which Christians have a God-given right, a moral responsibility to resist the authority of the state or any other human being for that matter. Number one, when men or women of God are asked to violate the clear command of God. Examples are found in Acts chapter 4 and 5. The disciples are arrested for preaching. They are ordered not to preach in the name of Jesus. In Acts 4 verses 17 through 20, the disciples went back preached in the name of Jesus. They're re-arrested in Acts chapter 5, verse 28. Did we not strictly command you to teach in this name? And look, you filled Jerusalem with your doctrine. You intend to bring this man's blood on us, it says in Acts chapter 5, verse 29. Peter and the other apostles said, you tell us, should we obey God or should we obey men? Would local government or state government or national government ever require the Christian to disobey God. It's possible. But we can't break God's law to accommodate man's wishes. Christians are required to refuse to participate in immoral acts. A Christian has to resist government when the government asks the Christian to violate their conscience. This would include participating in that which is illegal, immoral, unethical, working in institutions that perform abortions, participating or not participating in wars according to conscience. In order to discern right from wrong, the Christian has to expose himself or herself to the scripture. They have to look at what God's word says about the way that they're going to act in any given circumstance. When do you disobey the government? When the government commands you to disobey Christ. Otherwise, we're called a radical obedience to the law. We're law-abiding citizens. We obey the traffic laws. We obey the insurance laws. We obey 
the law. We give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. And more importantly, we give to God what belongs to God. And number three, all human beings bear the image of God. When Jesus said, and to God, the things that are God's, the religious leaders look marveled in verse 22. Caesar may have believed that he was the son of God, but Jesus makes it clear there's only one God. Everyone is subject to the Lord of heaven. The coin was Caesar's because it bore his image. We are God's because we bear his image. Who made Caesar? Genesis 1.27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created a male and female. He created them. Is Caesar aware that he owes his very existence to the God of the Bible? No. Do some of your family and friends have any? Are they aware that they owe their existence to the God of the Bible? Many of them don't. But that doesn't make it any less true. Jesus is going to use the common currency. The most important thing isn't the coin. It's the lesson about man's identity and responsibility. Did you bring a coin to church today? Put it in the agape box. No, I'm just teasing. That's not where the message was really going. If you brought a coin to church today, on each and every coin, it's made out of a certain metal, and it's minted in a certain place. Philadelphia, San Francisco, Denver. It has a mint mark. The coin that you have in your purse or pocket will tell you about our country's art or culture or value. And just like coins have a mint mark, Jesus is in effect reminding each and every one of us that we've been stamped deeply and profoundly as human beings. You were made in heaven. You were made for heaven. You were made by God. In what way do you reflect the image of God? In many ways, you exist like God exists. You're aware of your existence. When, Jesus, when God says, I am that I am, you should be able to say, I am also aware that I am alive. We're capable of thought, of reason, of communication, of worship, of fellowship, of, of conversation, the capacity to love. We're created moral beings. God has stamped his signature on the surface of every single human being and declared its value. A person's worth isn't determined by the state of North Korea. It isn't determined by Saudi Arabia. It isn't determined by the United States of America. If in the United States of America, they deem the unborn worthless, trash, garbage. We say, the Bible affords each and every human being certain rights for the simple fact that they're made in the image of God. A coin can be made by human beings. A human being or a government can declare its value, but only God can declare the value of a human being because he made you. 
When a government issues money, the government determines its value and its ability to pay debts or provide goods and services. When God creates a human being, he determines our value. He determines our dignity. He determines our destiny. In verse 22, it says, when they heard these words, they marveled and they left them and went their way. The political pawns, the Herodians, the religious hypocrites, the disciples of the Pharisees, had at least the presence of mind to escape further wickedness, further hypocrisy by leaving the scene of the crime. You're God's coin. You're mind in mystery and made with majesty. According to the scriptures, you are fearfully and wonderfully made. The marks of his workmanship are everywhere present. You're precious. You're valuable. God places you in circulation. And that should give you a sense of divine optimism. Because you're made in the image of God, because you can know God, and because you can love God, then you can also accept the, the fact that God placed you here. That your value comes from him and that you were made in such a way that you would one day circulate in heaven. One of the things I have in my coin collection are what's called counter-stamped coins. Counter-stamped coins are coins that were, were made, let's say, in Mexico, but then were counter-stamped by the Thai government or the Burmese government. Or the Portuguese government. I have coins that were minted in Mexico that were then counterstamped so that they could circulate in Central and South America. I have coins that were minted in Turkey that were counterstamped so that they could circulate in Saudi Arabia and Africa. When a person becomes a Christian, when they accept Christ as their Savior, God, by His Holy Spirit, stamps you in such a way that you are recognizably able to circulate in heaven. Isn't that interesting? Let me make it as simple as possible. If you understand what Jesus meant when he said, give to God the things that are God's, it just simply means give yourself. Give your mind, your heart, your soul. You were made by him and for him. And if you haven't received Jesus as your Lord and Savior, then you haven't given to God what actually belongs to him. And you certainly haven't been made fit to circulate where you really belong. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we are so grateful for this time. Lord, I'm grateful for the privilege of being able to take something as silly as a coin and use it to illustrate powerful truths that we have a responsibility to the government. And we have a responsibility to God. We have a responsibility to one another. We have responsibilities as family members, and we have responsibilities as citizens, and we have responsibilities as people who belong to the church of Jesus Christ. 
Lord, we pray that we would honor those responsibilities in a way without sacrificing the others, diminishing the others, or in any way dishonoring you. And so again, Lord, I pray that each and every person within the sound of my voice would realize that they belong to God, that they were made in the image of God, and they were meant to be known by God, have friendship with God and fellowship with God, experience forgiveness of sin and hope because of the sacrificial death of Jesus. And so again, Lord, we thank you for the privileges that we enjoy as free citizens. And we also thank you for the privileges that we have that because of Christ, we've been made free indeed. In Jesus' name, amen.